You know, it's interesting. We live in a world where we're constantly being bombarded by messages, especially media. And it seems like there's a never-ending news cycle. And sometimes it's just depressing, right? Depressing because we just see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Kind of a sample size in this last month. There was a huge cyclone in Mozambique in Africa. And more than 1,000 people lost their lives from that. Seattle. A crane fell down and crushed some people in their cars on the street. And last week, a plane in Moscow made an emergency landing and caught fire with the fuel. And then even last Friday, the sadness of a, another school shooting uh, where a young man, Kendrick Castillo, went after the gunman and lost his life. And it saved probably the rest of his classmates. You know, when tragedies like this, sometimes we have questions, don't we? We have questions as to why did this happen? How could this have been prevented? Sometimes we ask, where is God? Why didn't he prevent this? Why did he allow it? That's probably the question that the Old Testament book of Job really deals with. Maybe there's a darker question, though, that we ask sometimes, maybe in our lone moments. Well, did this person deserve this? Was there some evil in their lives that brought this upon them? Jesus, as we've seen, has been talking to a crowd in Luke chapter 12. And somebody brings up a recent tragedy that just happened. They're looking to Jesus to weigh in on it. What do you think, Jesus? And how he answers surprises the crowd. It might even surprise us. But Jesus gives a warning that is there that we might avert an even greater disaster, a greater tragedy that has a greater and longer lasting consequence. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 13 now. We've just crossed over from 12 to 13. But this conversation continues. So Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now, there were some present that the time told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went out to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, 
The man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and dig into God's Word today. So Lord Jesus, these words are centered around a tragedy, and they're centered around a warning. And this warning is for our good. So would you open our eyes, give us ears to hear, and I pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts to move towards you, whatever you're doing in each one of us. So draw us to yourself. But Lord, we take you at your word, that your word is not going to return void. It's going to accomplish its purposes in us today. And so Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Well, as I said, we've been pretty much in chapter 12 for a good long time of of Luke. And the, the major theme of Luke 12 is living for eternity. And as we got to the very end of this chapter two weeks ago, we were looking at verses 50, 54 through 59. And Jesus chastises the listening crowd because they're able to predict the weather pretty well, just kind of looking at the signs, yet they could not see what God was doing in bringing his kingdom through Jesus, even though that was very evident through his miracles, through his teaching, through his ministry. A kingdom where sin and rebellion against the holy God would be judged. And Jesus tells a parable in the last three verses. He tells a parable about being taken to a judge by an adversary. And Jesus urges us to be reconciled to that adversary before coming to the judge who will find you guilty and hand you over to the officer and put you in prison until the debt is paid off. And in this illustration, what Jesus is trying to show us is that God is our adversary in this, in this story because we owe him a debt because of our sin and rebellion against you. God is also the judge in this story before whom we will stand and we will be judged as guilty or acquitted, debtors or forgiven. And he is the officer who enforces the sentence of punishment. And so the question is, how can we be released? It's to be reconciled. And how can we be reconciled? It is to repent, to turn back towards God, and we're going to be unpacking that today. But Jesus is continuing this theme into this chapter 13. Now remember, the words of God are inspired, the chapter divisions, not necessarily. It's just there for our instruction. But again, someone in the crowd feels the need to tell Jesus about this recent tragedy, about this injustice that Rome has committed. You see, Governor Pilate, we don't know why exactly, put to death some Galileans who were offering their sacrifices at the temple. Most likely this was a Passover celebration because Passover is the place where individual Israelis can sacrifice the Passover lamb versus, versus the priests. But here's the thing. 
As they're sacrificing, they are put to death. Therefore, their blood is mixed with their sacrifices. This is the tragedy that's taken place. Now, it's not really clear why this person felt the need to share with Jesus. Perhaps because Jesus himself was from Galilee. Hey, have you heard about what happened to your people? Maybe it was to see whether Jesus would get upset about the injustices of the Roman Empire. Or maybe the reverse, because Galilee seemed to be a hotbed of rebellion. Perhaps he would speak against those rebels, those zealots. And maybe it was just perhaps because they're just going, how do we make sense of this Jesus? How do we understand what's going on here, this senseless death? And Jesus responds with a framework that is both anchored in reality and anchored in eternity. Look at verse 2 again. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Just because these Galileans suffered a a horrible death. It was probably an, an unjust death. Perhaps it was even retribution by Pilate. He was making an example. Maybe something happened up in Galilee and and Pilate says, hey, if this is the way these people are going to respond, I'm just going to put some of them to death. We don't know. But it is at, at the temple of all places. This place of worship. And there's even this thought of, this is a place of divine protection. Why did it happen here? How could this happen? Was there something in these people's lives that brought this evil, this wickedness to them? Perhaps there was something going on with them. And Jesus answers, no. No. They're no worse than any other Galileans in their sin. There's no real divine judgment here. Other than the fact that we live in a fallen world where evil and wickedness is alive and well. Whether it's perpetrated by governments or by individuals. In this particular case of tragedy, this is man's inhumanity against man. But then Jesus brings up another tragedy that seems to be accidental or caused by natural causes. Look at verse 4. Or those 18 who died at the Tower of Siloam and fell on them. Do you think that they're more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? A tower collapses on these people by our our natural uh, inclinations or modern inclinations. We'd ask, is there a design problem? Was it the wind? Was it You know, how did this happen? A construction accident? But again, this is a very... People that are looking for divine answers. And they're asking the question, was there something morally deficient in these people? In their actions, their attitude? And Jesus' answer again is, they're no more guilty than the average folks living in Jerusalem. And yet he says this twice for each of these accounts. I tell you no, verse 3 and verse 5, exact same both times. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He says it twice, exactly the same. At first glance, it seems that Jesus is saying, 
Look, a tragic end is going to befall you humanly, unless you clean up your act somehow. But Jesus really is, is pointing to a greater reality, an eternal reality. What he's saying is, look, the greatest tragedy is not that you would die. Die a tragic death or a, what we call, a, consider a peaceful death. But rather that we would die without repenting toward God. That is, all of us must recognize that we've sinned and rebelled against a holy God, our maker. Again, he asks the question, verse 2, were these Galileans worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Verse 4, were they more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, they're just normal, everyday sinners. And yet the wages of sin is still death. God is the source of all righteousness, and He must judge sin. So repentance is our necessary response toward God. And repentance is more than just saying, God, I'm sorry for my sins. Repentance is turning toward God and what He can do. Noticing that we have a debt that we can't pay. We're incapable of making it right and we are stuck. But we turn towards God and what He can do. Remember, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. Not only does it show us our need, our need to be reconciled, the need to have our debt paid, but to see that He is the only one who can deal with that. You know, within the big picture of this gospel, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. Again, it's the place where the temple is, where God's presence dwells. And ironically, you know what he's heading towards? His own tragic end. His accusers will be the spiritual leaders of the people of God. And he will be counted as cursed as he will end up on a cross. And yet the Apostle Paul gives us a better picture. So the truth is that he hangs on the cross to become a curse for us in order that we might be forgiven for our sin and our failure. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The bad news. We all stand hopeless and helpless before a holy God. The good news, he's done something about it. He sent his son to die on the cross for us to pay that penalty that we might be reconciled, that we might be have our debt set free, if you will. And then he rose from the dead. And he was vindicated to show that it was not for his sins that he went to the cross, but for ours and to give us life that we don't have in ourselves. So, Jesus is calling people to confess their sin, their shortcomings before God, to turn away from the things that are contrary to God and how God would have us behave, but also turning in faith to what God is doing and what God has done in sending 
His Son. But here's what I want to say. And here's what Jesus has for us in the second half of this passage. Is that faith is more than intellectual agreement. And Jesus follows up with this illustration for us to know this. Again, this is verse 6. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Here's the second thing I think Jesus is saying to us. Fruit-bearing faith is evidence of repentance. Fruit-bearing faith is evidence of repentance. If you or I plant a fruit tree in our backyard, our garden, what have you, we're expecting eventually that it will bear fruit, right? And if it doesn't after a certain time, we'll probably decide to get rid of it. We'll probably decide to get rid of it. Again, in this story, a man's been coming for three years, and there's nothing. Even so, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, through God, we have an expectation, He has an expectation that we grow and produce spiritual fruit. And here's the warning, the warning to avert a greater spiritual disaster. See, there is a danger of placing your faith in God and what he's done in sending Christ, and yet there's no spiritual fruit, no life transformation. For these original hearers, I I find it interesting that Jesus says, for three years I've been coming looking for fruit. This is probably year three of Jesus' ministry, right? They've seen what the Messiah has done. They might even have placed their faith in him, saying, yeah, that's the guy. But it has brought about no life transformation, no spiritual fruit, no deciding to follow him in faith and stepping forward to put their life following him fully. They're not going to come and follow him. Today for us, we're in a similar situation, I think, as we're on this side of the resurrection, this side of the cross. You may agree that Jesus came and died, that you are in need of a Savior. And you may agree intellectually that Jesus paid that penalty. You believe that. You believe He rose from the dead. You have intellectual agreement. And from that point, you have faith. But as far as your life, it hasn't changed you one iota. There's no life transformation. There's no taking Him seriously and taking up your cross daily and following Him. There's no real spiritual fruit. Here's what Jesus is saying. What a tragedy it would be to have God's Word, to have God's Gospel, and never really apply it to your life, to your soul. And Jesus is calling us to have faith, but not to have stagnant intellectual faith. Jesus' own half-brother, years later, would be talking about this in his letter. 
The second chapter, verses 14 through 26. He says, what good is it a person to say they have faith and yet there is no works? It's not working itself out. At the very end of his section there in verse 26, he says, don't you see that faith without works is dead? And by the way, I don't think James was talking about a works-based salvation. I think he was talking about a faith that works. That's actually being lived out. You see, I wonder if some of us have come to repentance in the sense that we've said sorry for our sins, but we've never repented of our self-rule and our self-will. We are still on the throne. We call Jesus king in name only, but he does not rule. And we're not allowing the life sap of Jesus to have his way in you and me. And it's impossible, keeping with this agrarian uh, illustration for us to bear fruit on our own. That's really what Jesus was saying when he talked about the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. Same, similar agrarian metaphor. He said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You have to remain in Him. Allow Him to live His life in you and through you. And that's why faith, that's why fruit-bearing faith is evidence of repentance. This is a challenging word, folks. It's a call to take stock if you've been following Jesus. Say, is there fruit in my life that I am following Christ? That I'm allowing Him and His Holy Spirit to have His way? Or maybe it's a discovery that we've kind of strangled that lifeblood by self-reliance, self-rule, and self-will. It's a call to take stock. The danger of being fruitless is that the tree is cut down. But the hope in this parable is this, that the vine dresser is committed to helping the tree bear fruit. And I think the vine dresser in this story is actually Jesus himself. Because he wants to fertilize the roots of our life through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And it is a call to repentance of self, reliance, rule, and will. And not only is this a warning to avert the tragedy of a fruitless life ending in judgment, but really it's a call to joy. It's a call to joy to let Him have His way in us and produce His fruit in us and to use us and give us the life that He intended. You see, when we're on the throne, when we're... When we're the ones may call the shots, we're not allowing Jesus to live his life through us. And frankly, it's a stagnant lifestyle. We, we wonder why we're supposed to have joy, but we don't. But you know what? When we let him have his way, we let him live his life in us and through us, there's great joy. There's great joy. 
Are we letting him live his life through us in order that we might bear fruit and that we might have joy in that? Second of all, I realize there are people in, in all sorts of different spiritual states. And maybe you're just checking out Jesus today. And we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here to ask those questions. And those are great questions. But I want to I point out to you that to take Jesus at his word is what you need to do. And you need to ask the question, why does he repeat this theme two times in a row? This issue of repentance. The first time implicitly in the previous chapter and now here explicitly. Why? Because Jesus came to be more than a great teacher, a great example, or even to raise up a religion, if you will. Jesus came that we might be reconciled to God. That we might have that broken connection put back together. And that He might make a way for us to do that. He came to be the answer to life's tragedies. Again, I will tell you, you know, none of us know what this life holds out. Whether we're going to meet an end that seems tragic or whether we're going to meet an end that seems peaceful. But you know what? Unless Jesus comes back, everyone is going to die. And again, the question is not, did I meet a tragic end or a peaceful end? The question is, do I know who is the end? And do I have a relationship with him. Jesus said, I came to give life again and to give it to the full. And not only that, but to come and transform us. To live his life in us and through us. Again, to have that joy of letting him live his life in us and through us. I want to tell you, maybe that just seems like Sunday school jargon. But that is the reality of the Christian life. If we'll let him allow, allow him to live his life in us and through us. But Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His apostle John would say, and this is the testimony of God, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and whoever has his Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If you're going to take Jesus and his followers seriously for what he said, you either have to determine that he is who he says he is and follow him or decide that he's not who he says he is. Neither he is crazy or maybe the greatest deceiver ever. You'll have to decide that. But he is holding out life to you. He is holding out life to you. To not respond, to not repent and turn towards him, the one who offers you life, just because you're fear, afraid of him being on the throne. My friend, that is the greatest tragedy you could ever experience. Jesus says, I've come to give life and give it to the full. And maybe on this Mother's Day, you today can repent. Realize that you are separated from God. You need a Savior. And you need someone to come on the throne of your life and give you His life. 
I pray that's true for you today. Let me pray for us and I'll the worship team come and close us. Again, Lord Jesus, these are challenging words. But we want to hear them. We want to take them for face value. And so, Lord, my prayer is that there's somebody today who, who needs to respond to you, who needs to repent in the sense that they're now realizing that they are in a place where they're separated from you and that they need to ask you to come in and be their Savior. To come and reign and rule in their life. Would you do that today? And then for some of us, Lord, who have been following you maybe for years even, but we realize that we have perhaps choked you off the lifeblood that you want to give us by our own self-rule, our own self-will. Or maybe we've just, Lord, grown careless because the, the challenges of life have kind of distracted us. Would you give us grace, Lord, to repent and turn towards you once again? whether it's blatant sin, Lord, of rebellion, or whether it's just forgetfulness, Lord. Would you cause us to return to our first love, the one who loves us more than anyone can? Would you give us grace to remove those bonds, those concerns, those things that keep us from allowing your full lifeblood to live within us? We want to do that today. We want to repent and turn towards you that we might bear fruit and experience the joy of seeing you at work, you living in us and through us. So we ask you to do that today, our Lord and our Savior. It's in your powerful and precious name we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?